In the year 2155, the universal translator will be invented. At least that's what Star Trek predicts. It was first used as a spying device, but the ultimate goal, the inventor said, was to bring differing peoples together in peace. I almost got lost in, on a Star Trek wiki. Look at, man, I, it was like sucking me in. We were a Star Trek family growing up. My condolences to you Star Wars people. In reality, we as a society are way ahead of schedule when it comes to the universal translator. Have you opened up Google Translate recently? Uh, I hadn't opened it in a long time. I just hadn't had occasion to, but with it right now, and I, I, I printed out our text for tonight on a sheet of paper, and then I, I tried this. You can just point your phone's camera at it, and it will instantly convert it to one of 108 languages of your choice. It's magic. It's amazing. In 2015, the BBC wrote an article saying that Google Translate is, quote, bringing us closer to a world where language is no longer a barrier. It offers a glimpse of a future in which there are no linguistic misunderstandings, especially ones that change the course of history. Now, by the way, when that article was written, Google offered interpretation in just six languages, and they were talking about how it was going to change the world, and in fact, it has in many ways. Linguistic barriers can be funny or frustrating. If you've ever had to go through that or been overseas or in a place where you're not in your native tongue, you know that. Every now and then, those sort of barriers can be downright dangerous. Just ask President Jimmy Carter. He had to endure multiple serious linguistic misunderstandings back in 1977 when he visited Poland on a state visit. At one point, his interpreter changed his phrase, I left the United States this morning into, I left the United States never to return. <laughs> Thank goodness there was no social media back then because it would have been a, a, a political crisis. It's been estimated that there have been something like 31,000 languages in human history. But for the first 2,000 years of our time on the earth, there was only one language. We saw in our last study, however, that the descendants of Noah and his three sons spread out in different directions according to their clans and languages. So what happened? How did it change from one language to many? Well, it happened in Babylon. But this is more than a story about words. It's a story about hearts, man's heart and God's heart. Sadly, Despite God's revelation, despite the uh, preponderance of evidence proving that he really existed, despite the judgment of the flood, which was global, we find uh, once again here our forefathers setting their sails away from God, running from him, rebelling against him, refusing to acknowledge him, and true to his character, God must respond, but he is going to do so not just decisively, but he's going to do so mercifully because that's who he is. So let's look at verse one of Genesis 11. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. The text here gives us the impression that a vast number of people are involved in what follows, and we have to assume that that is what Moses means as he writes this story down. The opening phrase, the whole earth, wants us to think big. And in the end, this judgment at Babel impacts everyone, or very nearly everyone. 
Some believe that those who were righteous and following after God, there's always a remnant of the righteous and those who were righteous, they say, would not have been judged since we know God does not judge the righteous with the wicked. And so the suggestion is that the original human language is one we might identify as Hebrew in origin and that it was retained through the Babel incident. That's a speculation. We're not explicitly told that, but Moses, our author, wants us to know that this was not an isolated situation involving only a few people in a small location. There's a whole lot of people. Verse two, as people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. In Genesis, movements to the east coincide with a growing separation from God, separation from God's path. Remember, Adam and Eve went out of the garden to the east. Cain moved to the east after he murdered his brother. At the end of his life, Abraham is going to send Isaac's half-brothers far to the east so that they won't be around him once Abraham is gone. And so here we already have a subtle clue as to the spiritual mentality of this group of people in verses 1 and 2. Now, on top of that, of course, we are breaking everything up a passage at a time, a week at a time or so. But remember what we have just read in the narrative. In chapter 10, we were told that this region and specifically this city that we're focused in on were founded and dominated by that notorious ungodly character, Nimrod, who we discussed briefly last time. Now, these people settled in the Valley of Shinar, best estimates and, and scholar work says that this is uh, a, a section of Mesopotamia. It would cover modern-day Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and Kuwait. This group decided that they were not going to fill the earth as God had commanded. Instead, they stop and they settle, and they do so relatively close to the land of Ararat where the ark had landed. Verse 3, they said to each other, come, let's make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. So we see here a unified cooperative effort. They're speaking with each other. They're planning with each other. They join together happily in the work. It's possible that Nimrod was the driving force. We're not explicitly told, but that's possible. But even if he is the, the driving tyrant behind this, we see a cooperation, we see an excitement, we see a participation among all the people here. And we learn some things about what they were doing. First of all, they had a certain level of technological sophistication. They weren't just making sun-dried bricks, they were making kiln-dried bricks. Charles Ellicott points out that being covered and joined with this slimy bitumen tar, your translation might even have the term bitumen there, these buildings and these constructions would be virtually indestructible, at least given the technology of the time. In that area, the Valley of Shinar, there were no stones suitable for building cities and temples. And so these people are showing impressive effort and impressive ingenuity in this project of theirs. One commentator writes, these people were content to face great and arduous difficulties in undertaking this project. This style of Babylonian construction has been verified by archeology, span by the way. They have found uh, these sorts of building materials. Now think for a moment about the incredible unity of these people. 
They were united in heart. They were united in focus. They were united in effort. They had a united goal. Of course, most of us know what's coming. Most of us have already filled in the rest of the story in our memory. And what we know that what is coming is not a good thing. It's not a good thing at all. And so what we have here is an opportunity to study and learn something about unity. Derek Kidner, a great Bible commentator, writes, the Tower of Babel makes it clear that unity and peace are not ultimate goods, better division than collective apostasy. Now, this is a, that's a challenging statement for us to think about, that unity is not in and of itself necessarily a good thing. But let's think through it. This is an important thing for us to realize, number one, because this is the idea that's being presented to us from this text. But number two, because it always sounds good to call everyone to unity as a goal unto itself, right? All the people of the world, let's just all do hands across America, we'll all be united and that will be good. All the nations, the united nations, let's just unify everyone and that in and of itself will be a good thing and lead only to good. On a smaller level, we often in the Christian realm hear that, well, let's get all the churches of a city together to do something, to participate in some event, to participate in some initiative, to cooperate in some program. And as long as we're all together, that must be a good thing. The idea is that if we were all simply unified, all would be well. But that isn't necessarily true. Who are we unifying with? What are we unifying about? Sometimes, the Bible reveals, unity is a terrible mistake. It is so here, the people of the world uniting, because what is their purpose? They're uniting to rebel against God. We'll see that explicitly demonstrated in just a moment. But we see other times as well. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8, what happened? All the elders of Israel came to Samuel. They were unified together in heart and mind and purpose and in effort. And what did they say? They said, give us a king so that we can be like all the other nations. And that unity to come together and demand a king led to what? Ultimately, it led to exile because the kings of Israel and Judah did not follow the Lord. A few of them did, but almost all of them failed. In the future, all mankind is going to unify one day. They're gonna rally together in powerful unity one day, the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ's return. They're all going to unify together to turn against the Messiah and try to fight against him. And they're all going to be consumed and destroyed by the King of Kings. Would be better to not unify with them on that day, right? Today, when we hear calls for church unity in the sense of let's get all the churches in a region together, all the churches in a town together, all the churches in a certain locale together to do a certain thing. That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's not what I'm saying, but it's not necessarily a good thing. It can, be, can seem prickly or hard-hearted for us to not immediately agree and sign on and take up the effort, but the particulars matter. God cares about what human beings do. We see that already all throughout the, these first 11 chapters of the first book of the Bible. God cares about the way that we do things, the way that we live our lives, who we're identifying ourselves with, who we're participating with, the way we're living and walking with him. The particulars matter. The goals matter. The members matter. 
And so the question is here, let's all unify together in this project to build something for ourselves. Maybe not a literal building project, but let's all unify together towards this goal. Well, there's an important question to ask. If we use the analogy of, of building this beautiful city of something, city of unity, are we the Jews and, and Nehemiah building some, a wonderful city, a wonderful fortification unto the Lord according to his leading? Or are we the Babylonians building a city here in rebellion against the Lord towards some other ungodly goal? Listen, if you have, for example, three churches who are all being called to unify together at some event, and one church says all roads lead to heaven, which some churches do, and another church says you can only be saved if you speak in tongues, which some churches do, and then you have a third church that says you're saved by grace through faith plus nothing, then you have a problem. As the Bible puts it succinctly, how can two walk together unless they agree? And so we need to understand that unity is something that we are called to, and we'll talk a little bit more about what we actually are called to in unity in a minute. But in and of itself, just the coming together of people in participation is not necessarily a virtue that God signs off on. In many cases, in many examples in the Bible, it's actually a great mistake. There, at, uh, when the children of Israel were participating in their egregious, idolatrous sin, Moses came down and he, what did he say? Everybody's doing all this weird stuff. He said, he said, who is on the Lord's side? And one tribe came out, the tribe of Levi. And he said, everybody else is doing their thing, multiplied thousands of people. We are going to divide from that group and go God's way. That's what we're talking about. Now, in verse four, we see what exactly they were trying to make and why. They said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered throughout the earth. So their plan had three parts. First, a city, Babylon. Second, a tower, which we would call a ziggurat today. A ziggurat is similar to a pyramid, but it is constructed with multiple levels stacked up, each one being smaller than the one below it, and typically would have a pagan temple on the top. Third, that city was going to be fortified, probably by a strong wall, in order to keep them safe and secure. Safe from what? from scattering, they say, from the very thing that God had asked them to willingly participate in. And so this is open rebellion against God, open rebellion against what he had commanded and what he had said. Now, your translation may say that the tower's top would be in the heavens. These builders weren't trying to get to the moon. This wasn't like a space race kind of thing though undoubtedly the structure was quite high. No, they wanted to make a heavenly dwelling place for themselves. They wanted to have a, 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 a gateway, as it were, to the heavenly realm, at least religiously speaking. This is the same idea that Lucifer had had from the beginning. We're told in the book of Isaiah some of what Lucifer had done and some of his motivation. And one of the things he had done was to say this, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God. And now as he continues to influence people who are not going God's way, he is polluting them with those same desires, polluting them with those same pursuits. They were putting themselves in the place of God. 
So God had said, be my people, walk with me, scatter and fill through the earth. They said, here's how, what we'll do. We'll ignore you. We'll pretend you don't exist. We'll stay right where we are and we will build ourselves a temple where we get to dwell in the habitation of heaven, as it were. I can go up and dwell in the throne of heaven whenever I want because I made this ziggurat. Their motivation had two parts, according to verse four. First, they wanted to make an immortal name for themselves. And second, we see they wanted to keep themselves secure. In this rebellion, we see the absolute foolishness of the human heart. We see how sick human hearts are with selfishness. First of all, they've convinced themselves that they will achieve some sort of immortality, making a name for themselves by piling up a bunch of mud bricks. If we do this, our legacy will live forever. There's an incredible amount of pride here. You gotta give it to humanity. Nobody does pride like humanity does pride. That they're saying, we're gonna create an immortal, everlasting name to ourselves because look at our mud pile, it's so great. I mean, what a silly, silly thing. These people, and remember, it's not just one or two people, this is a vast horde of humanity at the time. They are given over to what the Bible would label selfish ambition. It would also call it pride, but selfish ambition. It's a desire to put self first, to elevate self over others, to worship self ultimately. The question is this, it's easy to identify this in these silly people at Babylon. And so the question is, does any of this mentality lurk within us right now? Of course it does because we have a fallen human nature that we contend with. The Apostle Paul talks all about that in the book of Romans. So maybe a better question would be, does this sort of mentality drive any of our decisions in our lives right now? Our culture is absolutely infected with the idea that fame is a virtue and that it should be the pursuit of your life. Maybe not the pursuit of your career, or your vocation, maybe not the, the all-consuming pursuit of your life, but at least this part of your life. Get that, get that handle that is the good handle. Get those followers, get those likes, get those subscriptions. Some people are more prone to this sort of pursuit than others. You know, in 2017, one poll showed that 75% of children ages six to 17 said that they wanted to be YouTubers when they grow up, that that was their preferred choice of vocation. Why? Now, I don't mean to generalize and say that every content creator is absorbed with pride. I'm not trying to say that. But I think we have to admit that if that is a goal and if that is a choice, we need to very quickly examine the motivation to see if everything is okay in a heart. The Bible consistently warns us that pride, that selfish ambition is a deadly sin that not only separates us from God, but leads to ruin in our lives. That doesn't mean that Christians can never build anything or post on YouTube. We post on YouTube as a church. We get really weird comments that I have no problem just deleting and hiding and reporting to, to, to the YouTube police. I don't report usually, I just delete those. But so I'm not saying that a Christian can never build anything or that a Christian can never post anything or that a Christian can never invent anything or, or pursue something that would lead to a level of what we might call fame. 
Sometimes God asks his people to build great things. Sometimes God works through a life in such a way that their name is remembered through the centuries, through generations, across cultures. Think for a moment of the hospitals and the universities built by Christians and churches. Think of Gutenberg's printing press. He was a believer. The Wright brothers, they were committed Christians. Think of Solomon's temple. These weren't bad things because they're famous. The question is one of motivation. We can see the contrast clearly right here in this section of Genesis. Narratively speaking, we've had two major building projects presented to us pretty close to back to back, right? This tower and Noah's Ark. Both are huge, monumental, historic building projects. The tower is being made in challenge to God, in an effort to bring fame to humans who want nothing to do with righteousness, who want nothing to do with God's word, who want nothing to do with his control over their lives. The ark, on the other hand, was something that God actually asked his servant to do. He came to Noah and he said, I want you to build this thing. And people in every culture throughout all of history are going to talk about it forever. I want you to build it. I want you to invent this thing. There had not been rain before. There may not have even been boats before. We don't know. But effectively, he was inventing this new technology, building this monumental thing that people were going to talk about all over the earth. He asked his servant to do it. It was a huge undertaking. So the Bible does not tell you that you cannot be well-known or that you cannot create something that has far-reaching, long-lasting impact. The question is, what is the goal of your pursuit? Is it self? If it is, then you are going the way of Lucifer. And these people here, they said, we're going to build this great mud, mud pile and we're going to create an everlasting name for themselves. The, the comic thing is that they did make an everlasting name for themselves for folly and for failure and for the judgment that they received because of their sin, right? We're talking about them today thousands and thousands of years later, not talking about how great they are, but talking about how great was their rebellion and how silly was their project, thinking that they were going to build for themselves a mud tower that would stand the test of time and, and, and give them an entrance into the heavenlies. And so if our pursuit is self, self-glorification, selfish ambition, the Bible explains that the only legacy we will build is one of folly like these babblers. The other way is to be led by God, to be directed by him into your endeavors. And if that includes some monumental undertaking, then praise the Lord. Or if that includes just a quiet, peaceable life where outside of your community, no one knows your name Praise the Lord, because God knows your name and he has written your name in his book, which will last forever. Before we move on, notice this. They feel the need to, be, to build a fortified city. Why? So they won't be scattered. Scattered by who? By God? Maybe. What's more likely is that we're seeing their supposed unity here is, is just a facade. They're working together now, but they can foresee a time when they themselves are going to crumble into warring factions. That's what always happens when people live selfishly. When people are devoted to self and devoted to their own goals and devoted to their own pleasures and devoted to their own pursuits, they must necessarily devolve 
into warring factions that contend with others around them. It's true of nations, it's true of churches, it's true of marriages, it's true of the human heart. All the more reason why we don't want to live in this way. So what did they want? They wanted lasted, lasting unity. They wanted a measure of immortality. The tragic irony is this. They would have gotten those things if they would have gone God's way. Do you see what they want? I want to make a difference in human history. I want to have an everlasting name. I want to have immortality. I want to have safety and security and unity with those around me. You would have gotten those things if you would have gone God's way. But instead, they go the world's way. And in doing so, they lose everything. They lose, they lose all that they're hoping for. They lose the purposes of their life. They lose a relationship with their God. And all the while, while they're settling for cheap substitutes for unity, cheap substitutes for immortality, all the while, God wanted to give them true unity, true immortality, which was based on him and his power and his glory. And that's still his offer to mankind today. Verse five, then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. Obviously, God already knew everything that was going on. This wasn't a fact-finding mission. What's he doing? God loves to come down and be among us. It's always an interesting political gamble when our leaders come and tour a disaster area. Have you noticed this? George W. Bush was savaged when he was president for merely flying over New Orleans. And we, a lot of you can probably picture that one picture of him looking out the window that everybody was so offended by because they said he didn't come soon enough and he didn't come near enough. And so it's interesting. Of course, then we see different political leaders. I won't mention who they are. Touring, say, like the devastation of a wildfire and we're like, that's fake. What's he doing there? He or she doing there? I'm not saying who that is, but so it's an interesting thing. But here we have God Almighty coming down to tour the disastrous enterprise at Babylon. Now, some commentators are quick to suggest that the Lord didn't actually come down in what we would call a pre-incarnate appearance, a pre-incarnate form, the angel of the Lord. They say, no, I mean, God didn't really come down. He just looked at what they were doing. But that's not what the text says. We're told that the Lord came down. We're given the image of Yahweh, the great builder, the master craftsman visiting the construction site and taking a look around. Did they know he was there? I mean, did the angel of the Lord show up while they were building one day? This is complete speculation because we're simply not told, but I think it is very possible based on what we are told. That God said, you know what? I'm showing up to work today. And that wouldn't be so unusual, not even in the book of Genesis. Remember, he had face-to-face -face talks with Adam and Eve. He had face-to-face -face talks with Cain and Abel. He himself had shut Noah into the ark by his own hands. He will share meals with Abraham later in the book. Imagine the Lord walking into the grounds of this project, seeing the progress of their blasphemous sedition, looking around from structure to structure, face to face, not only looking at columns and beams, but able to look right into their heart and see everything that's going on in all of their minds. That's what was happening. And here is his assessment. Verse six, the Lord said, 
If they've begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. It's such an interesting thing that the Lord said there. From the beginning of the book, we've seen that human beings truly are a special creation. We have been equipped to accomplish what no other creature can do, not even close. We are worlds apart from the smartest animal when it comes to what we are capable of, ingenuity and communication and invention and ability and perseverance and all of these things. Listen, at the time of Genesis, the top speed for a human being was maybe 30 miles per hour on top of a horse for a short distance, right? And now you fast forward to our time when humans routinely travel faster than the speed of sound and it's not even a big deal. No one dies while doing it. It, it's just, it happens every single day all over the place. Right now, astronauts are spinning around our globe in orbit at 17,000 miles per hour, but that's not even really that fast in comparison to the Apollo 10 crew. They set the human speed record over 24,000 miles per hour they were traveling as if it was no big deal. It was a big deal. It cost a lot of money and they weren't sure if those people were just gonna turn into jelly, but now we know they don't turn into jelly. And now we could just send people up to the space station and they can go at 17,000 miles an hour day after day, month after month, year after year. It's no big deal. At Babylon, the weapons were spears and arrows, hand carved. Today, humanity can split atoms and engineer biochemical armaments which can wipe out whole populations like that. Consider the leaps humanity has made inventing things like the photograph, batteries that can harness energy in your hand, the International Space Station. Now mankind is working on things like, right now, researchers are working on things like time distortion and teleportation. And before we shake those off, imagine going and telling Nimrod, one day we're gonna travel at 24,000 miles an hour. We're gonna travel faster than the speed of sound. One day we're gonna take something called an atom. You have no idea what that is. We're gonna split it and it's gonna destroy a whole city in a moment. And so right now, researchers are working on things like teleportation. And that seems impossible, does it? doesn't it? But did you know researchers have successfully, I don't even know what this means. And I tried to read these articles and my brain turned off immediately. Researchers have successfully teleported photons between two Canary Islands, 88 miles apart. I don't know what it means, but I know that it's happened. The things that man is capable of are astonishing because of how God has created us. Of course, There are things that are impossible for mankind, the Bible says as much, but Genesis is a testament to just how unique we are in God's creation. Sadly, our potential is not only found in technological discovery, but also in our capacity to retreat from God, to sin against God, to fight against God. Think of the level of ability humanity has shown to create technology over the thousands of years of human history and now apply that to the sinfulness of a human heart because our hearts are even more sinful and more rebellious than our technological abilities have grown. And so the Lord, that's the context that is surrounding the Lord's assessment here. He says, man, look at this level of rebellion no level of rebellion that they plan is gonna be impossible for them. Human rebellion is so deviant, so powerful that when God himself put on flesh and 
and came to live with us and proved himself to be the Messiah, the Lamb of God, to, who came to take away the sins of the world, mankind murdered him. And they said, let's just kill that guy. And let's kill anyone who likes him. And let's spend our time making sure we wipe out any of his followers as much as we can. That's a profound level of rebellion and sinfulness. Having seen this rebellion here, God reacts in verse seven, come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. Why did God do this? Was it because he felt threatened in some way? Did he really care about a tower? Was it because he was jealous that they were building this city for themselves instead of for him? No, of course not. His action here is in fact one of mercy. In response to their unbridled rebellion and hatred of him, he did not kill them as he did in the flood. He did not blind them as he would later in the city of Sodom. No, instead, he simply gave them a new language to speak. But look at the beautiful mercy of God. He didn't only confuse their language. He additionally, in a measure of mercy, then gave them other people with whom they could immediately communicate. It wasn't one new language per person. It was a bunch of new languages per group. And they could immediately group up and have a little community. He left them with a community. This was a significant judgment, but a merciful one. Verse eight, so from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. We see that God had a will and that will was that people would scatter throughout the earth. Mankind tried to reject that will, tried to stop it, but God's will was still done. They had wanted so badly to not be scattered, but God accomplished it anyway. Why? To spite the people of the earth because God wants to do things to you that you don't want to do? No. God has done this for our good. Listen to Acts 17, 26 and 27. From one man, God has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God does not command us because he needs an ego boost. All his ways are good and they are for our own good. When we resist him, the result is ruin and waste and destruction and confusion. Verse nine, therefore it is called Babylon, for there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. You may be thinking, wait, I thought God is not the author of confusion. That phrase comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where God is talking about the way Christians are to conduct themselves in church services. The phrase there might also be translated, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. The truth is God does employ confusion at times in order that people might turn to him in faith and seek his wisdom. He employed confusion multiple times in the Old Testament to deliver his people. Think of those times in those famous battles where suddenly the enemy army is just super confused and they start killing each other. Jesus spoke in parables in order that the clear understanding would only be discovered and known by those who came to him in humility and sought his wisdom. God says that he purposefully works to confound the wise of this world in order to reveal the truth of salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ. But there's a sad contrast here. The Hebrew definition of the word Babylon means confusion, right? When, when you say the word Babylon in Hebrew, it means confusion. That's what pride led to. 
But it's interesting, in Babylonian literature, I'm told, the word means the gate of God. What a wide gulf there is between God's truth and man's opinion, between how we see ourselves and how things really are. And that's why we need to go to God to find out what the truth is, what is good, what is not good, what is true, what is false. There's a big question. Is God determining every event on earth or is he only reacting to what humans do? This is a theological argument that's waged out there. Some theologians see God as being what we would call meticulously deterministic, that he essentially forces every single thing, every single event, every single occurrence to happen that has happened. After all, there are no rogue molecules in the universe, they would say. Others in the camp called open theism suggest that God is all-powerful, but his knowledge of and plans for the future are conditional upon our actions, that though he is omniscient, God does not know what we will freely do in the future. It's called open theism. What do we see in this text? We see clearly that God responds to human behavior and by doing so, he changes the course of their trajectory so that they would not end up in a particular place, but that simultaneously that which he has willed from before the foundations of the earth is still done despite the free will, free will rebellion of humanity. And so listen, neither meticulous determinism nor open theism adequately listens to what the Bible actually says. The Bible distinctly demonstrates that human beings have been given a genuine free will, a real free will, and that God is not only all-powerful and all-knowing, but that he will have his way because he is sovereign. That idea is driven home to us in the next set of verses. We're going to skip over most of them. You can read them yourselves. They're very repetitive, and we've seen sort of their structure before. They come to us as a sort of post-credit scene after the drama of Babel. It's in verses 10 through 26, and it's going through these sons of Shem. Because remember, the, the writer of Genesis, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is getting us to that line of people that God is going to send the Messiah through. And he's going to do so through the line of Shem, but not just through the line of Shem, through a specific man. It's going to come down to one guy who has no kids, where the last hope is one guy, one old man who has no children, and it seems like all hope is lost. That one man is Abraham. We read this in verse 24. Nahor lived 29 years and fathered Terah, and he fathered Terah, excuse me, after he fathered Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. There he is, Abram, the father of the faith, the one through whom all nations would be blessed. This is more than just names and ages. We saw man's rebellion, and then we saw God's reaction, and here we have the perpetuation of God's plan all the same. Despite what man was doing and despite how God was intervening and despite how God using providence was changing the course of human history, he perpetuated his plan to save all of these rebels. Once again, we see he does not primarily perpetuate his plan through fortifications like man does. He does it through families. They're building towers. He's having people have babies. That's what he's doing. 
His fundamental work is not in high towers, but in humble hearts. And that will be the continuing theme for the rest of the book as we look at the family of this man, Abraham. Now we close having seen this scandalous rebellion and God's necessary but merciful response. Don't forget as we close that there is one more even greater mercy coming. Despite all that we've done, despite all our sinfulness, despite the fact that human beings, we have brought this confusion and this linguistic divide on ourselves, what's God going to do in the millennium? We're told that once Jesus comes back, well, there'll be no need for people to be scattered anymore that they might grope for the Lord. There he is. And we're told in the prophetic books that God is going to unify all nations and peoples together in one language. He's going to undo this judgment. He's going to do away with these divisions. We see a glimpse of it in Acts chapter two, right? Where in a moment, all of the divisions were gone and everyone heard in their own language the wonderful works of God. And so there's a time coming where God is gonna roll back all of this judgment and he's going to do away with it just like he's going to do away with all the other judgment as he restores the world and establishes his kingdom. But for now, as we've looked at this rebellion and God's response in this example, we are reminded of our Christian calling to unity, not generally, but our unity in Christ toward his goals under his direction that God would lead us on a path, not of self-glorification, but of humility. Paul lays it out for us very clearly in Philippians 2, and I'll close with this. Paul says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves, Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. That's unity. That's the goal. That's the purpose.